Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast. Hello, ciao, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, ni hao, marhaben, namaste, and shalom. Welcome to another exciting episode of Export Stories 2022. I'm your host, Betsy Olam, and I believe that it is high time we dedicated an episode to one of the U.S.'s most important exports, cotton, that soft, billowy material we all love. It also happens to be an important contributor to America's export economy. And we are so honored to have with us Buddy Allen, the president and CEO of the American Cotton Shippers Association. He's going to bring us up to date on the state of the industry and the world of American cotton exports. Hello, Buddy. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Betsy, and uh, thank you for having me. We're excited to participate. Yes, it's great having you. So, um, First, I thought it'd be good, buddy, if you just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and something about your career with cotton, and anything else you'd like us to know about yourself. Sure. Well, well thank you for that opportunity. Uh, my background is, has always been ag-related. I've sort of uh, been in a circle with, with agriculture and, and cotton that's led me to my current engagement with uh, the American Cotton Shippers Association. Uh, who is our Memphis-based trade association of, of cotton merchandisers and, and related businesses. Um, I'm a farmer. My, my background is production, and I'm still currently an active member of our family's farming operation in Tunica, Mississippi. And I think that's uh, a unique skill set for my role, to, to have that, that relationship and understanding of one of our key customer groups, producers. Um, in addition to production agriculture, I've got experience throughout my career in government affairs. Uh, I've always, to a certain degree, I've been engaged uh, with consulting firms that are, that are Washington-based, focused on, on ag policy, conservation policy, uh, environmental regulatory policy that, that's related. Uh, all, all these things are intertwined in the way we do business. And uh, I was associated with a firm that the American Cotton Shippers Association was a client of, and that, that led me to my current post here in Memphis with AXA. Okay, cool. So, so do you, uh, just curious, you go back and forth every day to Tunica? I do, I do. I, I commute uh, most days, Betsy. I travel a lot and yeah. in today's environment, we're all more flexible in the way we do business, but, but I'm in my office in downtown Memphis uh, most days when I'm not on the road. Oh, okay. I'm just curious about that. So let's talk about American Cotton Shippers Association. You know, what y'all are about, what you do. Sure. Well, as I sort of alluded to, uh, we are a trade association uh, based in Memphis. We're almost 100 years old. We're, we were, um, we're, we're 98 this year and looking forward to celebrating our centennial in 2024. Wow. Um, we, we, 
have a group of members that are very diverse. Uh, we have some of the largest agribusinesses in the world and, and some very small family-owned uh, merchandisers of cotton. We also have associate members that are provide related industry services like trucking or, or ocean carrying or um, insurance provision and, and various uh, risk management roles that, that facilitate the, uh, the purchase and sale of cotton. As I said, Betsy, our, our members are, are very diverse. And, and one thing that's valuable to our, to our spinner customers who are both located domestically and around the world is that we offer all growths of cotton that are grown in the United States. We have regional representation in our membership from, from the Western Cotton Shippers Association uh, based in California to the Texas Cotton Association to the Southern Cotton Association here in Memphis and across to our Eastern side, our, our friends with the Atlantic Cotton Association. So all U.S. growths are represented by our association and our members not only merchandise approximately 70% of the U.S. crop, but more than half of the cotton is traded in the world. So in addition to offering our mill customers all of the domestic U.S. growths, we also offer essentially all the cotton in the world. I see. So, um, okay, so the producing areas of cotton in the U.S., I've always had in my head that there were like four, Mid-South, Texas, Arizona, and California, but you mentioned Eastern cotton, so maybe I've Maybe I've conflated some of those. Is that about right? I think you've got a pretty base understanding uh, of, of the region. You, it, it may be more easily described as the southern half of the United States. And this technology and the way um, seed is, is bred to have genetic tolerance to cold and drought, uh, that, that geographic footprint is changing. And, and with the... Uh, the expansion of renewable fuel and the demand for, for grain production and diversity in production agriculture, we, we, we look forward and try to handicap the evolution of where cotton's grown, what the fiber characteristics will be, and where the marketplace for that fiber uh, will best appreciate its value. So, yeah, so cotton, it's a, it was originally a desert plant, right? But you've, ex, you've described an evolving plant, it sounds like, um, I guess through agro technology or something. Uh, can you go into that a little bit more about how the, what you're doing with the actual plant is changing and uh, what it means to the industry? Well, let me be very careful, Betsy, and not get out too far over my skis on this question. <laughs> I, I could certainly refer you to the right, uh, breeders and, and germplasm experts that could answer that question better than I can. Oh, that's but, okay. But there's no, there's no doubt that technology and development and the quality of the varieties our farmers grow is a, is a moving target and it's moving very quickly. It's, it's giving us uh, opportunities to produce a higher quality fiber in a more reliable manner for the U.S. to retain its status as the largest, most dependable exporter of high quality contamination free cotton in the world. And yeah. it's a story that we're proud of. So we're, we want to stay, we feel that we are ahead of the curve with, with competitors around the world. We want to stay there. And the evolution yeah. and, and adoption of technology is, is a key component of that. Um, see, I had a, had a very short career in the cotton business. So That's why I'm asking these questions or, kind of trying to let our listeners understand more. That, that was very comprehensive there. Uh, this is so basic, but 
cotton in like the Mid-South and Texas, isn't that a shorter staple than in the West? Is that still the case or is that changed? Sure, sure. Well, we, we, we don't want to use a derogatory term like shorter staple, but, but the Western cotton, the peanut <laughs> cotton is described as extra long staple. And the, up, the upland cotton that's grown in the other regions you mentioned uh, does have a more standard length staple, which is with the evolution in technology we've already discussed is increasing in length, strength, and uniformity. Oh, interesting. Okay. I would never insult my friend Cotton. So I just, <laughs> just, wanted, I I just wanted to get the information out there to some people who aren't as familiar. Um, and what are some uses that people might be surprised to learn? Cotton is a, a very versatile fiber. It, it's, it's, it comes in all, all different quality characteristics. It can be used to make some very coarse products like, like denim or, or even insulation. We're, we're recycling denim, denim products to, to make insulation, to make the cotton more sustainable. Oh. Uh, there's a way to repurpose uh, garments that are no longer utilized as clothing. So we're, we're proud of that sustainability story. And then you can go all the way to your really fine thread count bed sheets yeah. or, 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 or fine um, you know, um, men's clothing garments or, or women's clothing garments that require yeah. really long, a really fine thread count yarns. Betsy, to your question as to things that, that most consumers may not know about cotton and, and, and attaching it to my previous comment concerning sustainability, um, all, all fiber products have sustainability concerns. Traditionally, cotton has been challenged with water use. Wool's been challenged with animal husbandry issues. And polyester or synthetic fibers have been challenged by plastic contamination and, and pollution. Mm -hmm. and, and our story for the way our products break down and the biodegradation rates compared to um, synthetic fibers is something that we're so proud of. And, and the practices and sustainability measures that our farmers have incorporated to use less water and discharge fewer nutrients downstream is exemplary. So we, we feel like we're really leading when it comes to sustainability. Our industry is developing programs to verify and document those practices so brands and retails and end users can have certainty that they're purchasing a garment that was made with sustainable practices. And we're really proud of that. You should be. That's very exciting, very important uh, for the future. So I'm glad to hear that. Uh, let's talk about foreign markets that import our cotton. Uh, now I have this figure and I don't even, I hope I got it right, but according to the USDA, the leading cotton mill users between 2010 and 2020 were China, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Turkey. Uh, assuming that's correct, what has changed since 2020? And well, you've got, I'm, I'm sorry, Betsy, you, you've got to insert Vietnam in, in that list. That, that would be okay. the, pri the primary evolution. Uh, the spending industry in Vietnam has grown considerably. They're one of the United States' key trade partners. Uh, certainly, uh, China has always been one of our largest customers. It's been uh, a volatile trade relationship. There's been, a, there's been a trade war. There's been quite a bit of macroeconomic uh, disruption over the years with our trade relationship with China, but they have the capacity and ability to be our largest trade partner on any given year. It's a critically important market. We've seen a huge evolution in 
and the sheer volume of cotton that we export. Uh, in 1990, we were consuming about two thirds of the cotton that we grew in the United States. And today we're gonna domestically consume just over 10%. So the total percentage of our growth that's exported has exponentially increased. And we don't see that trend changing uh, in the near future. That's good, that's good, that's good. We like exports here. <laughs> so um, have the logistical problems that mostly began with COVID, port congestion, shipping delays, has that improved? recently? Uh, well, thank you for asking. And, and unfortunately, no. Uh, uh, this, sorry uh, to hear that. <laughs> this is um, just an incredibly challenging point in the conversation we, we will have. We are dependent upon exports, as I just described, almost to the tune of 90%. Uh, our exports are containerized, and the, the right. challenges associated with containerized exporting is acute. Uh, and it means that cotton has, has um, um, outsized challenges compared to other industries. 60% uh, of the cotton we export goes through the LA Long Beach complex, which has been uh, at times the epicenter of congestion. Right. There, there's a lot of data and it's very difficult to disseminate and really determine if things are improving or not. Ports will uh, report the, the number of ships at anchor, the number of ships at berth, the number of ships steaming inbound, the amount of uh, cargo that's that's waiting in, um, in dray or, or, or waiting uh, accruing storage for, for rail. Um, yeah. but, but what we like to do, we think the most simplistic way to really measure is to look at the total cargo volume inbound, the total 20-foot equivalent units of inbound cargo, which has been very static and very high compared to pre-COVID norms. As okay. long as that cargo level stays at that volume, our interior infrastructure is inundated and our intermodal supply chain is compromised. And we don't think that that will change anytime soon with that volume of cargo brought inbound. The other metric that we watch very closely and we're very biased to is the percentage of containers that are loaded compared to empty sailings outbound. So we, we saw most ocean carriers loading about 50% of their boxes for, for optimal weight and balance pre-COVID. Now about 20% of boxes are loaded and, and the balance are sent back empty. So with, with, with more supply, inbound of cargo that our infrastructure is built to manage and fewer export sailings of loaded containers, we have a, just an inherent challenge that's creating tremendous carrying costs and credit risk for our members to execute on time. Wow. So <clears throat> let me understand something. You were talking about inbound 20s, measuring inbound 20-foot containers. Is that because you're looking more for inbound 40-foot containers? Is that what you're saying? I just want to understand. No, Betsy, I, I apologize. That's industry no. jargon. It's, it's, a, it's a standard metric to, to measure uh, cargo volume by 20-foot equivalent units. Oh, okay. I understand. Two, two 20s is a 40. I, I thought I was being uh, literal there. Okay. I understand what you're saying. So, yeah, we, we, we would be happy to ship it in, in any size or, or package if we could at this point. <laughs> so, so one of the issues is getting the equipment 
getting the empty equipment to the producers here in the US. They're, they're shipping empty containers back to Asia quickly, and that's uh, slowing, that's keeping a lot of that equipment from the cotton producers. Is that, am I saying that correctly? Uh, to, to a large degree, you are. And, and let, me, let me back up and sort of uh, walk you through the evolution of the cotton shipment. We've talked about where cotton is grown. Uh, after, after it's gin, it's then, it's then concentrated in warehouses in the interior of the United States. And right. it's moved intermodally to the port of export or to a, to a domestic textile mill here in the United States. And in many cases, that requires a container, a truck, a chassis to put that container on, an right. appointment with the rail booking, and an appointment with an ocean carrier. All these things have to be staged and sequenced in harmony. If at any point through that through that journey, uh, there's a disruption, which it seems like there always is, at least one, in many cases, more than one now, yeah. you, you'll accrue uh, cost, you'll accrue risk that that equipment or that booking and availability may not exist, and you're compromising your ability to, one, be in regulatory compliance, uh, with shipping procedures concerning phytosanitary requirements and, and other mandates. And two, you're simply compromising uh, execution or fulfillment of your contract. When, when we sell cotton that U.S. growers produce, we guarantee its arrival in, in a certain window of time. And we're, we're obligated to fulfill that commitment. So right. when we experience these uh, supply chain challenges, uh, that's, that's where our, our risk is born. Um, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, to, thank to be you. More to be more specific concerning uh, why containers are sailing empty, uh, you, you've probably read the news about uh, shipping rates and, and how much uh, yes. during, COVID, in, during COVID our behavior changed. We quit purchasing experiences. We were, we were bound in our homes and we started to use our, our money to purchase tangible things. Right. That created uh, more more shipping containers filled with manufactured goods that were assembled in Asia and, and shipped for delivery to the United States. The value of that service and, and the, the potential return on, on the investment in an asset like a shipping container changed tremendously. We saw three, four, five, six-fold increases mm -hmm. in import shipping rates. And, and owners of that equipment very logically started to use their assets where they could create the most return in the most lucrative proposition. Right. Unfortunately, in doing that, they failed to provide reasonable service to U.S. exporters utilizing U.S. infrastructure in our domestic ports. And that's right. something we feel strongly about. And we hope, uh, and we'll talk about advocacy at some point in this conversation, I'm sure, but we're, we're proud of some legislation that has recently been passed, the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. Um, there, there's a companion piece of legislation that will give incentive or priority to carriers that do load empties. It's just recently been proposed. So there's some good work being done there. And I should also commend Congress for one of the few meaningful bipartisan actions that was agreed to, to put tremendous investment in infrastructure in the United States that over time can increase our capacity and our ability to be, again, the largest, most dependable global exporter 
in, in the world, but that, that those are going to take uh, those, those steps are going to take a lot of time to to realize the value of. Yeah, no, uh, now's a good time to uh, expand on that uh, advocacy. Um, so the first le piece of legislation you you mentioned, what, what was that again? Uh, is that something that's already passed? There was a. Yeah, yeah, Betsy, sure. I, I mentioned the Ocean Shipping Reform Act, which right. has been signed into law and is currently being prepared for implementation by the Federal Maritime Commission. Uh, the Federal Maritime Commission has a big task to take that legislation and make sure those statutes are interpreted to where there is a meaningful commercial impact when it comes to discrimination against ag exports that we've been talking about. Right. Uh, the provisioning of chassis or other equipment, which we've talked about and we know is critically important, and also just reasonableness or fairness in the way fees are levied, which in many cases has not been the case through these challenges. Right. Right. Uh, the, the companion bill that I mentioned that gives um, that gives incentive or opportunity to carriers to load export boxes is called the American Port Access Privileges Act. It was recently introduced by Congressman Costa and Giramondi. Okay, cool, cool. Oh, it's good to know that uh, just some of the many fruits of your labor, that's important. Um, so um, before we get into some of the storytelling, which is what we like to do here, you're sharing a few of your stories. Is there anything else you would like us to understand about your organization? Well, I, I would like to... Um put a little more color on the advocacy. Uh, the Ocean Shipping Reform Act is a nice example of the type of uh, legislative actions we would be supportive of or involved in the development of. Um, but our advocacy is broad. Uh, very simply put, our goal is to provide leadership that yields increased security and efficiency for the trade of cotton. Mm -hmm. uh, the, when there, when there are compromises and efficiency, like we've talked about through supply chain logistics, or their compromises in security due to the credit risk or compromises in contract sanctity that we've, we've discussed very briefly on this call already, they yeah. add cost. When, the, when those costs are added, they're shared through all stakeholders in the cotton industry. Uh, eventually, it devalues U.S. cotton to producers, and right. it, deval it, it, it erodes the competitiveness of U.S. agriculture in general. So right. our, our advocacy to increase that security and efficiency can solve those problems. Um, one example we talked about was Ocean Shipping Reform Act and its companion. Uh, we focus more on security with work through the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Uh, their, their recent work concerning position limits for derivatives, we were instrumental in, and it was so foundational to protect the function of commercial hedgers. So we as risk managers can assume those risks from our customers. We're proud to say we don't share risk with our customers. We assume them and manage them on their behalf. Now, I told you earlier, I'm a farmer. And right. Nothing irritates me more than when a, one of my merchant members says, we take all the risk because right. our, our farmer customers take risk every day that they can't control. Mm. They can't control the weather. They can't control the temperature. They, they can't control environmental conditions that that are so critical to their productivity. Right. But what, what they can do 
is alleviate themselves of certain risk in partnership with our members. We're proud to take those risks. We're proud to give them certainty as to what the price of their product will be, when they will receive that, that payment, and give them certain things they can carve out and, and not have to worry about while focusing on the other risks they have to manage and, and the functions that they're best qualified to perform. Right. Um, it just came to mind, and I'm looking for more of a macro discussion here. Uh, the Western part of the U.S. is clearly, for a number of years, has been struggling with water issues and, and some drought conditions. Um, is cotton doing well, even though that's something that's, you know, kind of everybody can see right now? I'm talking about like California and Arizona, I guess. Sure. Well, well, that's that's a great question, and um, certainly the, the drought in the West is is something that we should approach humbly and 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 cautiously. It's yeah. it, it is is something that is um, incredible. The incredible the impact it's had on our culture, on on production agriculture, on um, the, the way urban sprawl has changed resource use and, yeah. and and I don't believe nor does any good economist that I talk to that that's going to change. Um, yeah. So, but, but what's more contemporary in the cotton business we should talk about this year is the drought in Texas, which is uh, a bit of an anomaly. If I was able to share my screen with your listeners, I would show you the U.S. drought monitor. It shows the, the drought in the primary cotton production area in the United States, which is West Texas, right. at, at almost 100 year extremes. And we're going to see a smaller cotton crop produced because of drought in our key production area this year. Uh, that's something that's pretty widely agreed upon by, by handicappers at USDA uh, within our membership and, and yeah. throughout the industry. Uh, gee, I had, I had thought of, you know, really west of the Rockies, but that's very interesting. That's like Lubbock area. And exactly. Yeah. Well, goodness, it's it's just a an incredible phenomenon. And uh, you know, I I don't know what the solution is, but uh, I imagine you guys are addressing it and doing the best you can given the situation. <laughs> Well, it's, it's certainly a factor that's uh, one of many factors right now creating extreme volatility in, in the cotton market. Uh, the right. cotton, <laughs> I'm looking at you on one screen and I'm looking at the exchange on another screen while we're talking. I'm sure yeah. you, you don't have the burden of following the, the, the market as closely as I do, but it has been something to behold. Um, oh, yeah. we, we have seen an incredible bull market in recent months that mm -hmm. uh, in recent weeks has sold off one third of its value. As, as I talked to you today on July the 7th, uh, we, we've seen just a, an incredible sell-off in, in recent weeks um, in, in spite of strong demand, a, yes. shrinking, a shrinking crop because of drought. Um, so, we're just seeing, so, you use the term macro, we're seeing yeah. so much macroeconomic concern around yeah. inflation, potential recession, 
uh, rising interest rates, uh, accumulating stagflation risk, and um, market participants are scared. Speculative traders are retreating and volatility is, is higher than ever, which is uh, underscores the importance of, of, of valuable risk management strategies. Wow, pretty dramatic stuff happening here right before our eyes. I uh, appreciate your sharing that. Um, what I'd like to do now, if, if you don't mind, is, uh, you know, regarding these issues that we've talked about, if you could, you know, share some stories that kind of exemplify what's been going on and, and some of the experience you've had uh, with American cotton shippers. Uh, I know my listeners love to hear stories. <laughs> Well, well, I'll I'll give you a summary of, of my time here, which is um, just more, more than four and less than five years. And uh -huh. in that window, there's never been a dull moment. Uh, if sure. you if you scroll back to 2018, uh, when I started, uh, we were in a, a, another bull market, and everything seemed to be bullish, and the market fundamentals suggested that. Uh, the prices should go to new highs and, and there should be uh, a, a golden era in cotton as, as it was described oh. by one of my members. Yeah. Uh, and that, that was a very good observation on the day when, when he gave that description. Um, but, but here's what's so interesting about markets. There's always another variable. And, yes. and, and that's our job is to try to discover what that next variable is. In this case, it was something that no one could have forecasted or, or no, um, no analyst could have figured out that there would be political influence creating such phenomenal macroeconomic disruption through the U.S.-China trade war. And, in yeah. the, in the, and soon, soon after that comment was made in the spring of 2018, the first tariff was levied and the dominoes started to fall. And we, yeah. saw, we saw a really strong cotton market lose almost 40% of its value. In, wow. in, in very short order due to what became apparent to market participants, a prohibition of selling U.S. cotton to our largest customer, China at the time. Wow. So this was not only disruptive to agriculture and trade, but it was, it was most acutely uh, felt by cotton, who has such, again, a very acute need to export containerized into that key marketplace. Um, so we, we had a tremendous credit risk. We saw demand erode. Uh, and and when, when products begin to sit still, then the, the cost of storage and carrying, and oh gosh. et cetera, et cetera, begin to build on. So uh, we, we, we had, a, we had a, a, a challenge there and we worked hard uh, with, with many stakeholders. Unfortunately, our members did not receive any trade aid, monetary relief. They bore, they bore those costs. They made their customers whole. They provided that critical liquidity when it was needed. Wow. And thankfully, we, we signed the phase one trade deal with China, and we were going to restore things not to normal, but beyond normal. And we, when was that signed? So thankfully, after this trade war began in 2018, late in 2019, it was resolved with the signing of the 
phase one trade deal between the United States and China, which would not only, in our opinion, uh, bring things back to, to normal, but beyond normal and, and contain commitments for increased agriculture trade and, and real opportunity uh, to create demand for cotton. And, and that, that the market responded and things became optimistic again, just when COVID began. Oh my <laughs> and, gosh. And, and now here, here we go again, deja vu all over again, if you will. Yeah. And we saw um, consumption uh, of cotton not slow down, but halt. Uh, right. while, while you do have to feed your family and your livestock, you do not have to purchase new bed sheets during a global pandemic. We are certain of that. Yeah. And we, we, we saw consumption literally come to a screeching halt. So that type of uh, demand destruction certainly devalues any commodity, the cotton in this case. Right. And uh, as, as things began to restore, we saw uh, the cost of providing, of fulfilling that demand exponentially increase as supply chain challenges began. And when COVID started to spool down, the um, supply chain um, the supply chain challenges that we're currently facing were spooling up. So it's been it's been a calamity of challenges one mm -hmm. after another th through these years. I'm proud of the members that I represent. We have we mm -hmm. have made we have remained solvent. We have made our customers whole. We we have not received trade aid. We have not received COVID <laughs> relief, but we have been resilient, and our, our members have have applied all of the tenacity. Uh, that they can muster up to endure these challenges. Uh, there, there have been opportunities along the way. Don't let me skew, skew these and, and not sure. suggest there are not opportunities that come through sure. these type of market trends. But it's been, it has been a, a series of really challenging macroeconomic disruptions that have caused uh, tremendous risk to be managed in the cotton industry. Um, I hope if I talk to you in three years that we don't have three more chapters of that story. Oh uh, gosh, yeah. But but it seems like it's been it's been one major uh, major calamity after another, yeah. and um, and that's 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 the 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 part of this business that's so complex. Many people don't understand all the different types of risk. There there are environmental risk and weather. There, there are macroeconomic risks that come from policy and political issues or, or global recessions or, or, right. or, or changes in, in uh, human affluence, population sprawl, sure. um, currencies. It, there, there's just so many risks that wow. I manage. And I know when I was a producer only and not as engaged with these merchandisers as I am now, I didn't fully appreciate all the risks that had to be managed on my behalf. I understand that. One other um, question I have, uh, I've been curious about the workforce, the agricultural workers, is that dependent on Im immigrant workers or is it, is that not really affect, does that not really affect cotton? Uh Fair question. Agriculture is no different than any other industry. Uh, labor is a challenge, and and yeah. certainly uh, there there is an H two A program for 
for agricultural um, labor supplements when there's not sufficient labor supply in a current marketplace. Uh, like many, um, like, like many programs, it's very complex and right. it's expensive, and it's it's uh, it's not um, a widely subscribed to solution. So so our 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 customers and and participants in the cotton industry from from beginning to end, from 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 dirt to shirt, if you will, yeah. uh, their their labor challenges all along the way, and uh, I think that that's that's not going to change either. There's automation, yeah. there, there's technology being integrated into systems that, that require uh, a few, fewer uh, laborers, but it's certainly um, uh, a very, a very difficult challenge for, for everybody in this business. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, you're so nice to let me throw out all these questions. You're very, you're very accommodating. I, I like to, just get a, a full picture uh, for for people, um, and uh, it's it's really interesting to me as well. Uh, I'm gonna throw out just a total non sequitur at the end of this conversation. Uh, I have a question: Do you have a favorite movie that features cotton? I'm gonna tell you what mine is, and then you can think and see if there's one that you want to throw out. One of my favorite films is places in the heart and i love that film it, it takes place during the depression with a widow and her family planting cotton for the first time and I, one thing that stands out is they pick it by hand to get it to market and their hands are all bloody and wrapped in 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 you know fabric just or whatever bandages to as they keep going i just i, I just find that film all of it just to be uh, a uh, impactful film. So, my question to you is: You have another film that you think about in relation to cotton? Well, that, that is that is an interesting question, and I've I've got a a, a good answer for it. I think uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, "Walk the Line," the Johnny Cash story. That was oh on. yeah, oh, of course, yes. Well, there, there's an iconic scene when 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 Johnny is leaving his home on a cotton farm in, in Dice, Arkansas, and he has his dad's guitar case, and he's walking down what appears to be just an infinitely long straight road with cotton yeah. growing on both sides of it. Well, that was not in Dice, Arkansas. That was in Tunica, Mississippi, on yeah. on, on my family's farm, where where that movie was shot. So I got yeah. to interact with with. Um, the the team that, that filmed the movie and give them the context and the history of the cotton industry and, and see uh, see that come come to life on our family's farm and that was a lot of fun so as you can imagine I'm I'm, I'm going to be biased in that answer to oh that me. is too cool well uh, you know a lot of people don't know that a, a lot of that film was filmed around Memphis so that's a that's a great story I love it that's a great way to end this. Uh, Wonderful conversation. Buddy, thank you so much for participating and answering my crazy questions and filling us in about the world of cotton. It's so interesting. So really appreciate it. Um, and, you know, thank you for being here today. Uh, I'm just going to say this to our listeners. Uh, this was a really interesting conversation today. And 
we'd like for you to join in and, and reach out and, and give us your feedback. Um, we, uh, we're going to uh, post this episode on our website, exportstoriespodcast.com. And that's where all of our current and past podcasts are. And um, I'll be posting specifically about Buddy and the American Cotton Shippers Association. So you can ask questions and post comments right there on the episode page. We're also on Facebook and LinkedIn. So we're creating a community of exporters and we really like your voice to be heard. Uh, anyway, thanks again, buddy. We appreciate your being here. Thank you, Betsy. This has been a pleasure. And um, we're, we're a resource for you or, or your listeners. So if we can help in any way, don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you. Thank you, too. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting. 